So I have a question for you. How many steps do you think it takes to walk 800 kilometers? Hands up if you think it's 100,000 steps. So for those of you who have Fitbits, you do the math real quick. Okay, not 100,000. What about 500,000? You think it takes 500,000 steps to walk 800 kilometers? More? 750,000 steps? A million? Hands up for a million. You get the prize. <laughs> Obviously, everyone's a little bit different, but it takes about a million steps to walk 800 kilometers. And I should know, because I walked 800 kilometers. Two and a half years ago, I walked the Camino de Santiago Trail. And just hands up if you're familiar with what that is. Okay, great. If, if you've never heard of it before, or you're not very familiar, my secret hope is that after today, you will Google it, and you will plan your trip, and you will find yourself on the trail sometime in the next while. Uh, it is an ancient pilgrimage path. Uh, that has been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and to date, over two million pilgrims have estimated from all over the world walking this ancient path. And I read a book about eight years ago, nine years ago now, and I knew immediately after I read it that I wanted to do the Camino. It felt like it was right up my alley. I love to travel. I love to be in new places on adventure. I love to hike. I kind of love to be by myself sometimes. So it was right up my alley, and I found myself on 2014, in the summer of 2014, um, going to Spain by myself. I don't speak Spanish, and I started walking this trail. And I'll never forget the, the first sort of full 24 hours landing in the south of France, and then the first day is over top of the Pyrenees Mountains into Spain. Hour one and a half, friends. <laughs> I wish I looked that fresh and happy <laughs> for the entire 32 days. Uh, but you know, there's something really beautiful about not really knowing what is ahead. And so that first day, I went over the Pyrenees Mountains. It was an eight-hour hike, about 26 kilometers. And it actually is one of the hardest days of the Camino Trail. And I landed in this little town of Roncesvalles in Spain. And I went to dinner. And the hostel mother uh, put a bunch of us at a table together. So I ended up sitting beside a woman from the Netherlands, a woman from Switzerland, uh, a young guy from Germany. And we were just talking about our experiences from the day. And what I learned that first day is most people say, buen camino, buen camino, which just means good way in Spanish, which is that sort of classic greeting. Has anybody walked the camino? I probably should ask that. Oh, yay. Um, buen camino. And after that first day, I had said buen camino and received buen camino many times. But this guy from Germany, he was a student on study break, and he was an armchair historian, essentially, and had done a lot of research on the Camino. And I uh, was eager to learn. So he was saying, do you know that there's this other pilgrimage greeting that was, it's kind of been lost, but it was an ancient greeting. And it was in Latin, it was Utrea, which means keep going onward and upward. Keep going. Utrea, Utrea, Utrea. And pilgrims would say this to one another. And as soon as I heard the word, you know sometimes when you have those moments when you hear something and you just know that you need to pay attention to it and you don't necessarily know why? And I immediately sort of wrote it down and I completely misspelled it, but I just knew there was something about that keep going, Utrea, Utrea, that I wanted to hold on to. 
And I had no idea that throughout the 32 days, I would run across that word over and over and over again. It would be uh, written in, on overpasses and spray painted on the side of walls. And I found that word over and over and over again. Utrea, keep going, keep going, keep going. And it was very important for me to think about how do I keep going when I just don't want to take another step? I have a deep desire to land in Santiago 800 kilometers later. And so did all of my fellow pilgrims. We, we were fueled with great desire, but there were times where we were tired and burnt out and we wouldn't be sure if we were to take another step. So as I reflect on this, this journey of keeping going, to keep this desire going when we're not sure we can take another step, when frankly we feel burnt out. Here's a couple of thoughts that I've learned from the trail. The first one is seek the sweet. You'll see this in your notes. The second one is embrace your pace. The third one is lean on others. And the fourth one is keep the long view in mind. So I don't know about you, but you may want to think through what is it in your own life where you're feeling like you have this desire to see some change. You have a desire that you feel is a good desire to have, but you're just not sure why it's taking so long or you don't know if you have what it, it takes to stick with it. I uh, mentioned last night that I wrote this book about transformation, not only in my own life, but just the general themes of transformation. And one of the questions that came up is, you know, how do you keep going when you feel like you've been fully surrendered to this transformation that you think God wants to do in your life? What does it mean to just have to wait? So here are some examples, and maybe it plays out something like this for you. Maybe you've tried for every promotion that comes up, but you never seem to get it. Or maybe your spouse has been stuck in that rut for so long, and you're just starting to fall out of love. Maybe you've tried to lose that weight for so long, it's longer than you can even remember and the pounds just stay on. Or maybe your relationship with your parents is perpetually rocky despite your attempts to fix it. Maybe you've seen too much devastation, too much injustice, and you're just wondering if it is some cruel cosmic joke. Maybe you've been addicted for years, and you're not sure that you have what it takes to stop. Maybe you've been overcome by a traumatic event, and the pit feels too deep. Maybe you've been dating for what seems like an eternity and you're not sure you'll ever find the one for you. Or maybe you've been chronically sick for so long that feeling healthy and stable seems beyond your grasp, or you've run into a dead end with your career and you can't seem to find anything meaningful to do. What does the ache and longing look like for you? Where do you feel fully surrendered, full of desire, and yet nothing seems to be changing? Do you sometimes want to take off your boots completely and stop walking altogether? Or do you think you could be dared to take just one more step? Just one more. Do you think the adventure of life change, even with its valleys, could be more compelling than sitting down and not going any further? Could you consider the journey towards this complete and abundant life, the meaningful life that you're desiring, as the final destination? Could you keep going even if you knew there were parts of your life that won't change the way you'd like? Could you do it if you realized that your next step looked a lot like waiting? When we sit with desire and it's not quite there, we haven't met it yet, we create a story gap in many ways. There's this desire we have 
and the end goal is not yet achieved, and there's this gap that gets created, and that can be the gap where we're not sure we can keep going. And we often fall into seasons of burnout as a result. So when we talk about these four tips to keep going, the first one is seek the sweet. Now, when I was walking on the Camino, I had a lot of time to myself. And I did that on purpose. You know, when you walk the Camino, you can walk with people all the time, essentially. You can just sort of cozy up to people and carry on conversations for the six to eight hours that you're walking. Or you can be like me, who kind of gives off the vibe, I don't really want to talk right now. <laughs> now, there are definitely times where I really, really enjoyed uh, chatting with somebody from another part of the world. And there were days where it would happen all day. But a lot of the time, as an extrovert, I really needed some time alone. And so I relished those moments where I didn't see anybody behind or ahead of me, and I would just walk on my own. And it leaves a lot of time for your thoughts. Now, do you know that there's some new studies coming out that tells us that we have about 60,000 thoughts a day, 80% of them are about negative, and 50% of them are the exact same thoughts that we had yesterday. Does that ring true for you? It rings true for me, absolutely. What a shame, though, when you think about all of those thoughts that we have, and 80% of them potentially can be negative thoughts. So imagine being on the Camino on your own. There are a lot of thoughts that go through your mind, but my experience over 32 days of just walking out all of these thoughts being still with myself, being still with God, that a lot of those thoughts just started to melt away. Certainly the negative ones did. And it took many, many days of walking myself back to life is what it felt like. We don't all just get to step in and do a 32-day pilgrimage, but we have the opportunity to invite more solitude into our life. And so when I talk about seeking the sweet, I talk about these two things, solitude and gratitude. There's this idea that quieting is quieting. That quieting ourselves has a way of quieting our lives, quieting the noisy thoughts, especially those negative thoughts. This afternoon in the, in the workshop that I'm doing, we're talking about the contemplative life, so I'm going to get into this a lot more detail. But when was the last time any of us spent, dare I say, five minutes just being? Just being. Not sitting and praying, not sitting and doing a to-do list, not even sitting just to catch our breath from what was the crazy whirlwind of life, but just to be. We are human beings before we are human doings. But we forget that. And so when we want to keep going in this journey, a lot of our attention needs to be brought to slowing down and to carving out a healthy practice of solitude. I'm not sure how many of you are leaders within our churches, but I cannot tell you enough how important it is for us to have a healthy practice of solitude in our life. You know, Ken is here, and he has great experience and beautiful book that talks about sort of structuring your life around some of these disciplines, and um, you're going to hear from him later on this weekend. But solitude and gratitude, for me, become two very important practices to seek the sweet, and we can only keep going if we seek the sweet. So that's solitude. Now, when you think about gratitude for a moment, 
Look at this quote from Lisa Gunger. Has anybody heard of the Gunger Band? Okay, they're one of my favorites, check them out. Lisa Gunger, she says this, living a wild life is about fully living. It's not just jam-packing so much into our everyday that we only feel exhaustion. It is about cutting out the noise so we give ourselves over to what our souls were made for. We give ourselves over to what our souls were made for, and I think our souls were made to notice and experience beauty and love and compassion. You know, Paul writes in the book of Philippians something that I think is really important for us to take note of. This is in uh, chapter 4, verse 4. He says this, And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep, keep putting into practice these things you've learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing, and then the God of peace will be with you. When Lisa Gunger says it's about cutting out the noise so we give ourselves over to what our souls were made for, I think Paul's giving us a glimpse of what our souls were made for. To think about the things that are honorable and lovely and pure and right and admirable and excellent and worthy of praise and to keep putting into practice this idea of thinking about things. There's this, um, there's this research that's done around our brains not only do we have 60,000 thoughts and 80% of them are negative, but negative thoughts stick like Velcro. We have 100 emails in a day, 99 of them are wonderful, praiseworthy affirmations, and one is criticism. And what's the one that we go home and remember at the end of the day? It's the one, isn't it? So we have negative thoughts that stick like Velcro. We don't have to work hard at all to see sort of the danger around us in these negative thoughts. But good thoughts, loving thoughts, praiseworthy thoughts, excellent thoughts, beautiful thoughts, these take, as neuroscience tells us, at least 15 seconds of our attention in order for them to stick. It's like, they're like Teflon. So when we talk about cultivating a, a practice of solitude, we also have to cultivate a practice of gratitude because gratitude just doesn't come easy, right? 15 seconds is a long time to hold something. I, I once heard an example of this where someone was explaining how they were noticing a child watching a clown at a circus. And the child was just lit up and was just totally loving everything about their life in that moment. And the person said, I would have had to sit and reflect on what I was seeing and hearing and observing in that child for 15 seconds in order for that memory to stick. If it was a negative image of the child being terrorized, instantly we would remember it. We would know what it felt like and we would have it. Is that not fascinating? I and mean, there's lots and lots of science about this. So I think we should do an experiment here. And it sort of combines solitude and gratitude at the same time. We're going to do it for two minutes. We're gonna be completely silent. We're gonna have our eyes closed. And I want you to think of a, an excellent, praiseworthy, beautiful, lovely thought. Something that you are grateful for. 
And I want us to hold it in our, atten in our attention for two minutes. So don't look at your clock. I will be the timekeeper. Go ahead and take two minutes to really soak in something that you're very grateful for. Just one thought. Okay. How many people were surprised how long two minutes was? Anybody? A little bit. It kind of can be surprising when we don't actually stop ourselves long enough. That was two minutes of our lives. Imagine giving yourself five minutes every day. It really does change everything. And I look forward to chatting more about that this afternoon. Um, so here's a question. What will you do this week to bring more solitude and gratitude into your life? Because when we feel burnt out, not really sure if we're going to be able to keep fueling the desires that we have, the solitude and the gratitude become very, very important tools in our, in our toolbox. Here's another thought. If God is, in fact, using the sweet moments to transform me as much as the difficult ones, then I want to take notice. I want to look for him in the lovely. Barbara Brown Taylor writes in An Altar in the World, the exercise of reverence generally includes knowing your rank in the overall scheme of things. It's the proper attitude of a small and curious human being in a vast and fascinating world of experience. Full of appreciation of it required frequent adventures, grand projects, honed skills, and feats of daring. The sweet seasons in our lives are made sweeter when we revere them. A good day becomes a great day when we're full of gratitude for it. And the best way to savor the sweet is to admire it, not to let it pass by. We can make time stop for a second by pouring our awe and our thankfulness to the giver of these gifts. So, solitude and gratitude, seek the sweet. Okay, the second one, embrace your pace. So, brace yourself. This is the tamest picture of my foot I could find, because <laughs> there were some really awful pictures of blisters I wasn't about to uh, show you. But this is a picture of my toe uh, bruised. And it's not that I stubbed my toe, but what was happening is I was having this wicked shin splint in my left leg that my muscles were tightening up in my calf and in my shin, and my toe was sort of walking on top of my other toe. So every step I took every day, my toe was getting butchered, essentially. The shin splint was excruciatingly painful, and it came out of the blue for me. The Camino has these sort of three sections, if you will. If you start in the classic Camino Francaise, you start in a small town in the south of France called Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, and you walk the first 12 or so days, depending on how many days you're walking, till, to a city called Burgos. And this section is beautiful and very hilly, and you're walking through the Rioja Valley um, with a beautiful wine region, and it's just, it's lush and it's lovely. And then you get to Burgos, and from Burgos until about Astorga, uh, which is another good 12 days, is called the Meseta. And the Meseta is this very dusty, flat plain. And then the last third is in Galicia, which is very, very lush. It's called like the Ireland of Spain, they call it. But this middle section, this Meseta, is flat and deserted. And so when I managed to walk 12 days, feeling very, very strong, I was like, whew, I've made it to the Meseta, 
Now I, I don't have to worry physically because it's just flat and I'm just going to be walking straight for 12 more days. And the first night after the first day on the Maseta, I could feel my shin starting to hurt a little bit. And the second day, it got worse. And the third day, even worse. And then the fourth day, I was sitting hunched over on a bench at 6 o'clock in the morning trying to get my boot on, and I just wasn't sure if I was going to keep going. I really was convinced that I was going to have to stop, and I wasn't going to get to my goal. The desire that I had to hit the Camino, or to hit the Santiago and the cathedral, you know, X number of days later was not going to happen. I was devastated. I was weeping. I just thought, I can't keep going. But I just slowed my pace right down. And when I say slowed my pace right down, instead of walking 26, 27 kilometers, I was walking four kilometers. I mean, it was slow going. I slowed right down. And what was more painful was saying goodbye to all of my friends who I had been walking those 12 and 13 and 14 days with. We kind of became a Camino family, and it was wonderful. But their pace was just as strong in the Maseta, and mine slowed right down. And by the time I got to day 14 and day 15, I really realized that this pace thing was pretty important. You know, I was becoming an expert at knowing, based on my pace, how long it would take me to walk 17 and a half kilometers. I just sort of knew really, really well how long it took me to walk a certain length. And I remember in those first 12 days that there were people who were really struggling, that they had started out strong in those first three days, and then they slowed right down, and I never saw them again. There were people who would pass me, and I couldn't believe their pace. It was so quick. But when it came time for me to slow right down, it was the first time in my life that I had no self-judgment for my pace slowing down. I had no self-judgment for my vulnerability, for my weakness. I mean, I was the weak one on the trail. I was the one with the fragility and the vulnerability, and it was the first time that I wasn't self-judging myself for that. Almost my entire life, I've always tried to be the strong one. I've wanted to be the strong one. I've wanted to be the right one. And, and my pace has kept at the strong, the right, the, the, the productive one. And I would always have a sense of judgment if I wasn't measuring up to the task. But after walking 400 kilometers, I sort of threw up my hands. I was like, of course, of course, there's something going on here. I had no self-judgment. I was sad about my pace, but there wasn't an indictment on who I was as a person. That my vulnerabilities were just as much a part of me as my strengths were. And I'm wondering, how often we go about our lives indicting ourselves for our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities or indicting other people for their weaknesses and their vulnerabilities. But what would it be like if we could truly embrace our pace, knowing that I am a mixed bag of gifts and strengths and things that I can offer the world in my strengths, but I'm also a mixed bag full of vulnerabilities and weaknesses, and even in those places, I have something to offer myself, offer God, and offer others. You know, we're reminded of this beautiful verse in Scripture, you know, His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Well, what would it be like if we learned how to embrace our weaknesses as places not only where God shows His strengths, but also the places where we give our gifts to the world? 
You know, when I had slowed right down, I was, of course, very, very sad to see my friends go. But my Camino experience, as I look back on those 32 days, I never would have met the people that I had ended up meeting if my pace hadn't slowed down. They would not have blessed my life with their story, and I would not have blessed their life with my story. But that God has a way of using our vulnerabilities and our fragilities and our slowed down pace to bless others and to bless ourselves. So I could have easily been self-judging. I could have easily been like, oh, I was so strong in those first 12 days and now I'm not strong at all. And like, get with it. What's wrong with you, Kristen? Look at everybody else. They're passing you and all your friends are stronger than you. That just wasn't my situation. But I realized that that was one of the first times I'd ever felt that in my life. So what does it mean then to embrace our pace in our everyday ordinary lives, particularly in those places where we have these deep desires? You know, I am learning how to embrace my pace in real time right now in pretty what feels like dramatic ways for me. Because sometimes embracing your pace doesn't mean just slowing down, it means stopping. On the trail, it means stopping and having a rest day or two. I mean, some people need to stop for four or five or six days until their blisters are healing up. They don't keep going, they don't just take a slower pace, they stop. And so I'm reminded of my own life. You know, I have these desires to serve, to offer my gifts to the world, to speak, do different things. But do you know that today is the last day that I'm speaking for a very long time? In fact, I don't even know when I'm speaking next because I've had to just stop. I have been going so hard and I've, and I've not been embracing a slower pace. So I'm stopping knowing that that is actually the wise way to let God deal with me, to let my vulnerabilities show. You know, I'm obviously so grateful to be here, but I had this inkling earlier this year that I need to stop for a while. And that, you know, my commitments until May will be honored, but then I don't know when I'm gonna be speaking again after this. You know, I trust that I will. I'll trust that I'll get up and I'll put my boots on and I'll keep walking again. But instead of seeing that as a weakness, instead of seeing that as a vulnerability to beat myself up on, I am really trying very hard to just sit with it and say, no, this is wisdom's voice deep within me saying, time to stop for a while, time to slow down. But that can be really hard when we have these desires. So what is it for you? How do you need to embrace your pace? To embrace the fragility and the vulnerabilities of your own makeup and see that that is also a place where God meets you and where gifts that you have to give to others can also be found. You don't, also, you don't only give gifts in your strengths. We need to embrace our pace. And so here's a question for all of us. Where do you need to be gentle with yourself in all of this? What's the one place where you just really wish your pace was stronger so that you could meet those desires that you have? But you just need to embrace your pace, even if it means slowing down. Maybe it means even stopping. So we seek the sweet, embrace our pace, and now we're moving into this third one, to lean on others. So. This is a picture of what was one of many classic pilgrim meals. 
On the Camino, there are many, many places that you can dine. And the truth is, most often I would be eating in a cafe in a small town somewhere. I would find some fellow pilgrims and we would have a pilgrim's meal. But there are other albergues or hostels, is a, is a way of saying that, where you can gather together with the pilgrims that are staying in that hostel and you're gonna cook your meal together. And it is a really beautiful communal experience. So around this table, uh, you can't really tell sort of how many people are there, but I believe there was 10 different nationalities represented around that table. I think there was maybe like 18 or 19 of us. And I think where there was four or five different languages that were spoke around that table. You know, there's something so beautiful about the Camino experience where you realize that the only thing that matters is the most important thing that matters. And that is that we are just fellow pilgrims on this journey with this destination in mind, trying to make our way and do our best, taking one foot and then the other and then the other. If we want to keep going, we need to lean on others because there are fellow pilgrims around us all of the time. And we cannot do this without each other. You know, certainly that meal would not have been prepared if we hadn't all had helped out. You know, there were times where I had no clue where I was. You know, the Camino is not very difficult to get lost on, but there are moments where whether you started out early in the morning and you missed a yellow arrow, or you're just not really sure you wanted to take a detour to see something, you can't find it. You can't figure it out on your own. You have to ask somebody. There were times when I paid for uh, people's meals, or I gave them water, or they gave me their snacks. I mean, that is what is so beautiful because you just are existing as fellow pilgrims on this journey. We had different ideologies, different understandings of how the world worked, different ways in which we moved in the world, whether it was with our families or with our jobs, our languages, our culture, our political views. It was all different and none of it really mattered. There was really only one thing that mattered and that was let's walk together and get to Santiago. Let's be fellow pilgrims on this journey. Let's lean on each other. Let's share our stories and let's get to Santiago together. So when we want to keep going, we need to be able to lean on others. So here's a question for us. Who can companion you on this journey? This journey that you have where you actually do feel like you're burning out a little bit. This, this, this experience where you're just not sure how you're gonna take another step. You know, when I was huddled over that bench at 6 a.m. in the Spain countryside, you know, I had three pilgrims who I'd been traveling with that whole time, and they knew that I was hurting the night before I was icing my shins, and it was just a mess. And I was crying on this bench as we were all getting our boots on, and they just said, you can do this. You know, we will see you tonight. Don't you worry, we'll see you tonight. You can do this. We'll meet you in five kilometers for coffee. And I was like, five kilometers? I'm not sure I can make it five kilometers. Don't wait for me. You know, but that night, when I honestly wasn't sure if I was going to keep going, I ended up walking further than I probably should. But I walked into this town, and it was very late in the day, and I normally arrived very early in the day. And I wasn't sure if my friends had stopped in this town or if they had kept going to the next town. That's kind of how it works. You just kind of keep going until you want to stop. And I was literally dragging myself into this town, and I just needed to find the very first hostel. And so there was this convent 
that was a, a hostel, and I turned the corner thinking that the chances of them either being in this town or being in this hostel are remote, but I don't care because I need to stop. And I turned the corner, and all five of them came out at the exact same time, and I just started weeping, and they all came out to me, and they gave me this big hug, and they took my pack off. They said, we actually saved you a room. The bed is right here. I mean, those are called Camino moments. They happen all the time, and they're so, so beautiful. But it was exactly at that moment. If it had been two minutes earlier or two minutes later, they were all walking out to go and get a beer. I was just turning the corner after, you know, nine and a half hours of dragging myself down this trail. We need each other. So who is going to companion you on this journey? And I am not joking about that text them right now piece. Like, you can pull out your phone and literally text them right now. Because we sometimes feel like we are a bother. We sometimes feel like we'll get to it later, but then we don't really realize it. And I have to do this for myself. I talked last night a little bit about um, the Enneagram. And for those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a two. So me asking for help is like, I don't do it very well. (laughs) So this is maybe more for me than it is for you. But, But reach out and just say, hey, I want to talk to you about something I'm thinking about right now. Or I'd love for you to sort of be a fellow pilgrim with me on this journey that I'm on. But we do need each other. And I think our church communities can really serve a purpose for that for many of us. Okay, the last one. Keep the long view in mind. So these stretches were some of my favorite. Uh, They're not everybody's favorite because um, there's not always a lot to look at. But for me, I really, really enjoyed where I could see the long road ahead of me and I could see dots of pilgrims ahead because it reminded me that I am on this very solitary journey in many ways. I'm, I'm the pilgrim with my own two feet that's got to get a long distance, but that there are other people on this journey with me that have gone ahead of me And that road stretches west for 800 kilometers to Santiago. And even though I can't see the cathedral from where I am walking right now, I can see that the road will lead me somewhere. And it's in the direction that I want to go. So as we think about how do we keep going when we feel burnt out and we're not sure we can literally take another step, what does it mean for us to keep the long view in mind? When I was researching doing the Camino, I uh, watched a few YouTube videos. I ended up doing, I had plans to do the Camino in 2016, and I ended up sort of with six weeks before, I said, I'm doing it now. And I went and I went away and did this in 2014. I actually did go back in 2016 and walked some of it again. But I did a couple YouTube searches, and every single time that I saw sort of a YouTube video about the Camino, it always showed as people were walking sort of those last sort of 100 meters or so into the big square in front of the cathedral, a bagpiper under this little bridge, and if you YouTube it, you'll see it. There's this little sort of over, overhang that just leads in right before the square, and there's this bagpiper. Was there a bagpiper there? Did you walk into Santiago? Was there a bagpiper there? There was, okay. He's everywhere all the time. (laughs) So in my mind, especially when it was very difficult for me to get those boots on and to keep walking, I had to get into my mind, what would that moment be like? 
when I would come over the crest of this little hill and I knew that I was 100 meters away from finishing this journey, that, that this arriving in the square would mean that it was a culmination of a journey, a, an end to the pain, the beginning of freedom and rest. And I always had the image of this bagpiper and like he was gonna be doing this Gaelic tune and I was gonna walk into the square and people were gonna be like cheering and it was gonna be fantastic. The last five days of my Camino was pouring rain. You know, raining cats and dogs rain. And the last hour and a half, I don't think I've ever walked in such crazy rain in my whole life. But at that point, who cares? Because you're, you know, less than 10 kilometers away. <laughs> and so you walk into, into uh, the city of Santiago, you're walking into the newer parts of the city, then you merge into the old parts of the city, and I keep thinking, I wonder when I'm gonna start hearing these bagpipers, right? But at that point, it honestly didn't matter, because I was there. I mean, I knew I was just a few steps away. There was no bagpiper there that day, gone. Uh, he emerged when it wasn't so rainy. And there was nobody waiting in the square for me at all. In fact, it was probably the least amount of people I've ever seen in the square in the multiple days that I've spent in Santiago. But do you know what? It didn't matter at all. The image that I had was very important for me to keep going. But how it actually transpired, what actually happened, it didn't really matter that that vision faded away. But holding something in my mind and keeping the long view in mind was very, very important. So I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 12, after we've just heard about the heroes of the faith in Hebrews chapter 11, people who kept the long view in mind, people who were hoping for things that they could not see, and in some cases they did not see, but they kept the long view in mind. And then the writer of Hebrews reminds us, so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy for him endured the cross. We fix our eyes on the long view. We imagine the heroes of the faith, the great cloud of witnesses, who've already walked this journey ahead of us that they have something to say to us. They are saying, Utreya, 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 keep going, keep going onward and upward. Keep the long view in mind. You can do it. And so we keep our eyes not fixed on the western horizon towards Santiago, but we keep our eyes fixed on this promise that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of this journey that we're on. So if we want to keep going with this desire that we have, where we really feel like we're kind of grasping at straws and we're on our last leg, what would it be like for us to hold that long view in mind, to recapture a beauty, a vision for this beauty, for this pilgrim journey that we're on, not really sure exactly how it will end, but the truth is by that time it won't really matter because we will be coming to our arrival. So we have to keep our eyes fixed on the long view. This is what it looked like for me when I arrived. That big green thing is that crazy big poncho. And, you know, there, are, there was nobody really waiting in the square. You know, everyone was under their umbrellas, those people who were there. And it didn't matter. I was so happy and so relieved, so overjoyed and overwhelmed, full of gratitude, 
for this journey that I had been on, not only the good parts, not only the easy parts, not only the lovely parts, but also the difficult parts, that that's what made this journey meaningful. And isn't that true of our lives? You know, if our lives are great stories, great stories always include a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Always. So in our own journeys, we are the character, and we have to want something which always feels like desire. We have to overcome conflict to get it. And so in order for us to overcome conflict, we do want to um, keep going. We want to seek the sweet. We want to embrace our pace. We want to lean on others. And we want to keep the long view in mind.